James Gould, and you're listening to The Recess Course. Today on The Recess Course podcast, we're going to be talking about digoxin toxicities. This is a medication that we don't see that often and a toxicity that we see even less frequently, but it's one that can definitely kill your patients and you need to know how to manage it quite well. We're lucky to have Dr. Caitlin Wolf here again with us today. Welcome on the show again, Caitlin. Bye, James. Caitlin is a fellowship-trained medical toxicologist, and she completed her training in London, England, at Guy's and St. Thomas at NHS Hospital Trust. And she's one of two toxicology-trained docs this side of Montreal, which I imagine makes for, uh, for a busy tox life, does it, Caitlin? Yeah, you can do, yeah. She's the Associate Medical Director at the Atlantic Canadian Poison Centre. She's an all-around great doc and an awesome person. We're lucky to have her here. So, Caitlin, let's get going. I'm going to give you a case, and you just tell me. We're going to run through some things in terms of management, and how does that sound? That sounds great. Okay, so there's a 70-year-old guy. He presents to the ED feeling unwell. He recently had a lower respiratory tract infection, was treated with azithromycin, and for the past three days, he has had weakness, nausea, vomiting, blurry vision, and confusion. His past history is significant for high blood pressure, congestive heart failure, and AFib, and he's on amylodipine, digoxin, and Xeralto. You walk into the room, and he looks unwell. His vital signs are okay, heart rate of 75, blood pressure of 110 on 70, Temperature of 37.1, he's 95% on room air. You have a sneaking suspicion that this patient is sick. When you hear that story, a patient who's on digoxin, what are your first thoughts just on hearing that case and that presentation? I mean, my first thoughts as a toxicologist are always to suspect the drugs (laughs) that are involved. That whole, you know, if you have a hammer, everything's a nail. But really, I think what I think immediately is, you know, this is a classic you know, patient that we see all the time where really anything could be wrong and, and he could be fine, actually. Like he could turn out to just be a bit dehydrated and be totally fine, actually, at the end of the day. And, and he could be very sick. And there are many, many possibilities. And given those comorbidities in that medication list, you know, we have to do quite a bit of digging here in real life in these cases to, to sort of sort out what's going on. But for the purposes of today, of course, you know, I kind of zero in right away on, on the digoxin that's on his med list there. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, obviously, this is going to this is turning into a detoxin case, because that's what we're here to talk about. Uh, but w- what are the things that make you think about ditch toxicity in the emergency department? Because we do see people on ditch. And you're and and the point is well taken that, you know, people can present and be on ditch and be sick for for other reasons. And that's probably the majority of the time. But when do you suspect, or at least consider ditch toxicity in patients that present to the emergency department on digoxin? I think that the most important thing is to always consider it. So it's n- it's not something you always have to necessarily pursue, but it is something that you always have to consider because it can be so nonspecific. And I just want to kind of very quickly delineate the difference between the fact that there can be quite acute dig, dig toxicity. So in someone who's taken too much, either on purpose or, or accidentally, and then there can be chronic toxicity that's just happening from accumulation over time or a little bit of dehydration or an AKI or something that's making that person's usual therapeutic dose too much for them. And that chronic toxicity is actually in some case series looks to be that it occurs in up to a one fifth of all people who are treated on dig long term. So 
you know, I've probably seen five people on Dig in the last couple of weeks and in, in my shifts, and I certainly didn't necessarily consider it in all of them, but you just need to keep an open mind that it is a medication that can cause a lot of trouble and very non-specifically. So the initial symptoms in a lot of people are, are nausea, vomiting, and diarrhea. So it looks like a GI illness, this kind of non-specific fatigue and weakness. It can cause delirium. And then, you know, in, in higher doses or more acutely, we do talk more about the kind of scotoma and, and visual symptoms that people get with, with probably overall bigger doses. But it's very, very nonspecific. So when do I think about it? I think if you have someone who's on DIG and has unexplained GI, neurological or visual changes, I think you need to be suspicious for sure. And if someone has cardiac or ECG changes that are suspicious as well. So you know, I, I think it's just important to keep in the back of your head that it's a medication that for some people is is life-changing in terms of the management of their AFib, but it also is one that, that has a relatively narrow therapeutic window. So you should be thinking about it. You should be considering ordering levels and including it in your differential if you think that person's toxic or, or you just really can't explain the presentation that they're there with in some other way. Mm, yeah, well said. Do you check a level on everyone that comes in who is on digoxin? I don't, you know, by routine, like, you know, somebody who fell and broke their ankle and gives a clear story of having tripped over a door frame. No, but in somebody who has fallen and they don't know why and they've broken their ankle, I would probably check a level on, on them and be using that as part of my interpretation of what's going on in this patient. It's important to remember that if you take a single oral dose or, or a large, you know, acute event kind of dose, DIG needs about six hours to redistribute after its oral dosing. And so it's not a useful level in, in terms of predicting toxicity. If you get it one or two hours later, it will look falsely high. Whereas someone who's on kind of chronic dosing and, and is in their steady state, that level might be useful anytime. Mm, so anyone that presents with a history, you know, they took their medication, they took an overdose acutely at 1 p.m., you would wait and do the level six hours later, about seven o'clock? Yeah, or at least I wouldn't panic about the first level if the nurses included it, you know, or it was drawn off in my first panel that they got right away. You know, if it was relatively high, I'd probably re make sure it was reordered at the six hour mark just to get a better sense of what their actual kind of serum and body load is. Mm. That's good to know. So there sounds like there's a group of people who present acutely and a group of people that present chronically. For those that are chronic did see presenters, what sort of things, and you alluded to some of them earlier, is what kind of things increase the risk of someone presenting with chronic DIG toxicity? Yeah, the most common one that we probably see is someone who's gotten into a bit of an acute kidney injury for one reason or another. So they've become dehydrated or, or, or their other medications have caused a kidney injury and, and then their DIG kind of becomes too much for them because it's not being properly handled by the body's excretion systems. But the other thing to note is that, of course, since ditch toxicity causes nausea, vomiting, and diarrhea, that becomes a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy if they're still taking their ditch. So it probably is one people shouldn't be taking, you know, on a, on a sick day. Like when we talk about sick day dosing of, of home medications, you know, probably ditch is one people should leave off, but they, they often don't. And then the other thing that, you know, you've alluded to in this case is, is drug interactions. So there are no, numerous classes of drugs that are notorious for interacting with ditch and, and macrolide antibiotics are definitely one of them. So this gentleman's just been treated with an azithromycin course. And then unfortunately, other cardiac drugs like diltiazem, rapamil, and, and amio can all kind of potentiate the effect of, of DIG and either, either increase its levels or, or just make people more toxic at the same level, depending on the drug. Yeah. There's always these classic ECG findings that are mentioned for DIG toxicity. 
you know, what are some of these findings? Are they specific, sensitive? How reliable would they be? Would you use them for deciding if someone was toxic? Or is this just more of a, of a for interest sake, this is what happens on their ECG? Yeah, so toxicologists, you know, love for interest sake ECGs. That's like, you know, something that we're into. But for the, for the general, you know, population approaching the ECG, again, I think it's really important to differentiate between whether we're talking about a chronic situation or somebody who's taken an acute overdose or that we think is acutely overdosed by accident. And the reason for that is essentially everyone who's treated chronically with DIG at a therapeutic level will get some changes on their ECG. So when you talk about the things like the flattening uh, or the inversion of the T waves and the kind of depression in the ST segment, that's so classic, that's, you know, associated with chronic use. And I would expect those changes on almost anyone who is on DIG at, at a therapeutic level for any period of time. When we talk about toxicity and we're worried that someone is DIG toxic, what you're looking for is not those changes per se, but the signs of, of cardiac instability. And so those are things like an, an atrial tachycardia, you know, presence of a new junctional rhythm, presence of new conduction disturbances, um, signs of sinoatrial or AV block. And all of those, again, you're comparing to their previous ECG to see if those are, are new for them. But really, DIG can cause, you know, profound changes at, at numerous levels in terms of the, the cold conductance and, and function of the heart. And so what you're looking for in overdose is more of those changes and not the kind of classic ones we've been trained to, to talk about for exam purposes. Yeah, yeah. Well, we do have an antidote for DIG, and I know that it's a bit controversial in terms of when you'd consider giving, giving it, but what are the sort of the things that you're looking for either on labs or clinical exam that might help you decide whether or not you're going to give Digifab to this patient? Yeah, I think, you know, so much of it is about kind of putting together the whole clinical picture. So many of them, people who are mildly, chronically ditch toxic, or perhaps even this gentleman who's at this point, you know, relatively stable looking from our, from our history and looks a bit unwell, you know, he might just need his medication health, you know, skip today, some IV fluids to kind of rehydrate him and, and improve his, his kidney function and uh, maybe have a look at his interfering meds and, and things like that, but, but often is not going to need the antidote. And the antidote here is most commonly known by its, its sort of branding name, which is Digifemol. There are other formulations, but they're basically these body. So fab that's, that's working to trap the, the loose dig in the body. So a lot of people are not actually going to need it. When do I give it? I give it to people who are unwell looking and, and I think the DIG is at least a part of the problem. I give it to people who have really very high DIG levels and, and there's some nuance to that. So I don't really want to give a, like a quote, a level on the, on the podcast, but you know, there's a sort of basic range that we accept for DIG levels. If you're looking at kind of double that or triple that, the DIG is probably part of the problem that you're looking at in this patient. And so I'd be much more likely to give Digifab. And we give it for arrhythmias that are dangerous. So we don't give it to somebody who's a little bit on the bratty side or a little bit on the tacky side, but completely well. But someone who's having like a significant arrhythmia and, and having perfusion problems as a result of that, all those people are going to get Digifab. I would say the sort of last category in my thinking about that is I give DIG if I really just need to take that off the table. If I have someone who's quite unwell and I can't figure it out, maybe he's just septic, maybe he's got something else going on, that DIG is staring me in the face on their med history, I'm just going to give some Digifab and completely take that off the table because something is really critically wrong with this person. I think that's also you know potentially an acceptable use. And I would, of course, encourage you to discuss with your local poison center and, uh, and, you know, get their take on things and, and what your local dosing strategies are. Yeah, yeah, great answer. The, this idea of an elevated potassium, now I know that, you know, 
elevated potassium has definitely happened in some of these patients who are on DIG because, you know, they're just sick and have chronic renal insufficiency and may have a slightly elevated potassium, or maybe they have an elevated potassium for other reasons. But based on the mechanism of, of digoxin, you know, we always talk about this idea of an elevated potassium in acute, in acute ingestions being an indication for digifab. Any particular level that you'd be worried about? Is, is it true that uh, you, would, you would give digifab in someone with an acute ingestion based on their potassium? I certainly would include that as part of my thinking, you know, if it's somebody who otherwise should not be hyperkalemic for any reason, and, and they're hyper K, you know, let's say over five, I think is, is the cutoff on our product monograph, then we start to think about it for that reason. And it's because as you alluded to the, if you go back, you know, to the basic function of digoxin, what is it doing to our cells is it's very, it in, indirectly works on the muscle and the way that it works is by inhibiting that, that sodium and potassium ATPase pump in our muscle cells. And so it's working to increase the intracellular sodium. And by doing that, it's making more extracellular potassium. So if you have no other reason to have a high serum potassium, that is probably because those pumps are all being affected by DIG. And so that's a sign that you have pretty profound toxicity. And maybe if we wait another few minutes, you're going to have the cardiac toxicity. I think that's kind of where that comes from. If you have no explanation for the hyper-K beyond DIG poisoning, that is an indirect sign that it is blocking a lot of pumps. And of course, that hyperkalemia, as you've said, is worsened by the dehydration and the AKI that either could have provoked your chronic DIG toxicity or be worsening it because now that you are a bit toxic, you are getting more of those GI losses from the nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, and you know you're just in this cycle where you're becoming more and more hyper K, and and that's going to worsen your your cardiac prognosis as well. So it, it's not you know if it's slightly elevated, just above you know kind of cutoffs and they're otherwise well. No, I w- I wouldn't treat for that, but it's it's part of your gestalt as to how sick this patient is and what direction they're going in. Mm. So I guess the summary would be if we have someone that presents with an an acute ingestion of digoxin who is a person that otherwise shouldn't have an elevated potassium, but they do, let's say above five or above 5.5, then you'd be much more worried about this being sort of a primary toxicity that would need digifab. And then the other reasons would be the rhythm issues, hemodynamic instability, and the same would apply for the chronic presentation, an unstable patient with an abnormal rhythm or altered LOC. Yeah, exactly. Reasons to give digifab. Exactly. The, the sick patient essentially is the person who gets digifab. Everyone else probably has a little bit of time to, to just kind of see what, what happens when we give a little bit of rehydration and, and treat some of the other abnormalities. Yeah, well said. Okay, in terms of the dosing, so this is always a bit tricky to try to figure out. And, and correct me if I'm wrong, digifab is, is quite an expensive drug. Not that we care too much about the cost of things, if it means it's going to help the patient. But in terms of trying to decide how many vials of digifab that we actually need what what's your strategy it is relatively expensive and in relatively short supply so it it certainly isn't something that you want to give too much of and the other thing to think about in terms of dosing is that most of these patient patients are on digoxin because they had hard to control afib and you don't actually want to fully reverse the person who's in a little bit of chronic digitoxicity potentially, because you may solve the problem of their you know, bradycardia and then just put them into fast AFib, which is refractory to other treatments, because that's why they went on the dig in the first place. So this is you know, not something we're trying to completely remove from their system. We're just trying to kind of turn down the volume on, on how much is floating around and available to their cells. And so the mm-hmm. chronic toxicity is is really the bulk of what you're going to see. And there's been you know, a bit of a sea change in terms of how 
we are dosing this and and this you know locally here in in Halifax it's the Atlantic Canada Poison Center at which I work that that gives the monographs for this and we actually have really changed our strategy over the last few years and for chronic toxicity we essentially are no longer doing those kind of body calculations and the dosing calculations that you see and you've probably read about before we're we're really suggesting a very slow and slow situation where we give essentially one or or maybe two vials depending on how sick the patient is at first and then potentially redose in the subsequent hour or so depending on how they're doing and most people with who are who are like this gentleman you know a little bit dehydrated a little bit unwell a little bit of a drug reaction after one vial like usually you reverse the bulk of their serious dig component of their presentation and maybe they need another one a little bit later on this is very different from the acute dosing strategy and also very different from what we used to do for everyone and very different from the product monograph from the developer of the medication as well so this, this may sound controversial when you kind of look at, at what it says in the package insert. Yeah. Wow, that's good to know. So in terms of the acute ingestion, let's say you have a known large ingestion of didoxin as a, say, a suicide attempt, and you're seeing the patient, they're approximately five to six hours post-ingestion, and the, they present to you unstable. We won't go into the reasons in terms of whether or not that's rhythmogenic. We'll get into that a little later. But let's say they're, that they are unstable in an acute ingestion. How, how much? How many vials would you give there? Or is it more of a dough level or amount ingested based calculation? Yeah, that's a good question. So there are different dosing strategies depending on if you know the level or not. And again, you know, as you've really clarified, this is in acute adjustions alone. If you know how much they took in milligrams, the sort of typical calculation is 0.8 times that dose in milligrams and then double that. So 0.8 and then times 0.2 and then you just round up to the next highest number of vials. So, you know, for lots of people, a sort of full reversal dose is going to be somewhere in the neck of like 10 or even 15 vials, depending on, on what they took. If you know the digoxin level, there's a much more complicated way to do that, but you basically use the the level in their blood and multiply by a certain factor, multiply by their weight and divide by 100, and then again, round up in the nearest vials. Those usually work out pretty similar, but you know, in the person who's taken an acute amount, you are reaching for a lot more dig, digibind, sorry, than, than you would be for the chronic dosing. And, and we are still following that, and that's, that's very close to what the packet insert says. If you didn't know exactly how much they took, let's say they're unwell and a bit altered, and you're standing at the foot of the bed and someone asks you how much digibind you want, any particular number that you'd throw out there, not having the level, not having the amount ingested, but you know they've ingested some and they're unstable? Yeah, I think that's, you know, probably just a practice pattern thing. I don't know that there's anything, you know, studied about that in terms of what's in a, you know, a minimum effective dose. But I think if you've given, you know, two or five vials somewhere in that that realm for somebody who is, you know, suspected of a severe acute poisoning while you're trying to get things sorted and you've had no response, that's a bit suspicious. Um, mm. But again, you know, probably this is someone that you're going to be discussing with your local toxicologist and gets trying to make a bit of a plan going forward. I do just want to mention while we're talking about digifab that, you know, it's binding to the digoxin in your in your bloodstream, but it's not actually removing it from the body. And so after you've given digifab, your digoxin levels are not accurate. So if you're thinking about digoxin toxicity, please draw your dig level before you give the first dose. And after that in, in the body, it's, it's really not accurate. It's only the unbound digoxin that's acting on the cells. And you can't differentiate between bound and unbound on your serum levels. So you might be testing these really high levels of digoxin, but they're not seeing that at the cellular level. And so it's not as dangerous as it looks. Oh, that's interesting. So with that being said, let's say they come in the door, you do a level as they arrive, 
ingestion's been approximately six hours ago. And you don't have an amount or a level back yet, but you give them five vials. Uh, finally, the level comes back. Can you then sort of back calculate to figure out exactly how many vials you should have given them and then supplement those vials on top? Yeah. The five that you've already given? Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, something we've kind of avoided to this point is these sort of tachy and brady dysrhythmias and how you'd actually manage them. So let's say that a patient came in with an acute digitoxic ingestion and they had a sort of a malignant tachy or brady dysrhythmia. Let's start with tachy. How do you treat those? Let's say they've come in with this sort of bidirectional VT, the classic finding that you see in digitoxicity. Yeah, this is a bit tricky. There are you know, suggested strategies or case reports with basically all of the antirhythmics. So people have used things like, you know, phenytoin, lidocaine, procainamide, propanolol, amiodarone, all these things to try to, to treat these. But it's a bit concerning some of them, you know, phenytoin's a sodium channel blocker that we really usually in a toxic way suggest that you avoid at, at all costs. And procainamide and propranolol can can worsen the cardiac depression that you can get in in digoxin overdose. So this is again, you know, acute profound overdose. And then amio can actually kind of increase your dig level or, or potentiate the effect of the digoxin. So of those, if you had to pick and you knew this was dig, I would probably start with lidocaine, and I would give magnesium to everyone. We talked a little bit about the hyper K. The real danger, actually, when people come in acutely dig toxic, is being hypo K. So if you have low potassium and, and by extension, as they usually travel together, low magnesium, that is most dangerous in terms of your, your immediate cardiac instability. And so I would give everyone magnesium, you know, on spec who's coming in with a tachydysrhythmia and ditch toxicity. And I just be very careful about trying to treat someone who's borderline hyper K with hyper K reversal strategies. If you end up giving that person digifab, once you have a bit more information, and, and you've done your calculation with your poison center, et cetera, and you know what you're planning to do, it will actually bring down the potassium. And what you don't want is to be exposing those already kind of sensitized myocytes in the heart to low potassium while you're trying to get everything else sorted. So I wouldn't reverse them unless it was really spectacularly high and you and you don't have recourse to giving digifab. So you're practicing somewhere quite remote and, and you're not going to be able to get that for some time. But so for those people, I'd suggest for, for primary control of the tachydysrhythmia, lidocaine if you need to reach for something, treat them with magnesium for everyone and and really try not to touch the potassium until you need to and don't cardiovert. We know that cardioversion increases mortality in the tachydysrhythmic ditch patients. Awesome. Really good to know. What about the bradycardic patient? So someone comes in with one of these blocks or bradycardia uh, who is a ditch toxic patient. How do you treat that? Yeah, this is a little bit more common, usually again in our chronic patients, which is what we're mostly going to see. They, they just, for some reason, tend to go a bit slow with these blocks. Atropine is still the first line treatment, like for most you know, significant clinical bradycardia, if they're having any AV blocker or just bradycardic. And the doses are you know, similar, start relatively low, sort of 0.5 to 1, but you, can, you may have to go up further. So you may be looking at a total dose of 2 to 3 milligrams, depending on how, how serious their blockade is, but it's basically atropine. Hmm. What about pacing? Would pacing work in these patients? It could. Yeah, it absolutely could. So, you know, again, if you're needing to pace them, you're probably working, reaching for your digifab. And so, you know, that's probably going to help you with that as well. It's really, you know, to, when we talk about treating the dysrhythmias, we're treating them with something other than the antidote. If it's someone who's not sick enough to need the antidote and just needs a tiny bit of support while we get them rehydrated. And so if there is sick enough to need pacing, then, then usually you're probably reaching for something else. Yeah, that's well said. So, you know, really 
you know, rhythms that are causing hemodynamic instability, the summary is that those patients just need Digifab. They just um, need the then, antidote, exactly. Yeah. You know, what these patients need is treatment with the antidote primarily, while simultaneously perhaps trying the, the, the other common things that we do for these, for these dysrhythmias. But, but really, the, the underlying treatment, the goal is to, is to give them the antidote. Yeah. In, in the pre-antidote era, somebody who came in with true digoxin toxicity had a, had a mortality, like sort of expected mortality rate of up to 40%. It's a dangerous condition. You know, things that make me more worried about, about a bad outcome is somebody who's older. Males tend to get into more trouble and people who are quite hyper K, as we've already said, that's a bad prognostic factor and people who present with AV block. But if you had all those features and, and a known overdose in the pre-Digifab era, as I say, that was about a 40% mortality. So it is it oh, has yeah. become a life-saving drug, but it's also one, as we mentioned before, that is, you know, expensive and not really necessary for a lot of people who are just kind of borderline a little bit too much Dig. So it, use with caution, you know, explore with your local toxicologist, but those are kind of the the, the guidelines that I, I work under. Yeah, yeah, that's great. All right, we alluded to this already a little bit, this idea of the patient that comes in with hyperkalemia. And as you mentioned, perhaps those patients, if they're only mildly hyperkalemic, they won't need any particular treatment for that. Now, what about the patient that does have significant hyperkalemia? There's always been this notion, at least early on in my teaching, I heard this idea of if you treated with calcium, you could precipitate this idea of the stone heart. Can you speak to that? Yeah, so this idea is a, you know, it's this kind of theoretical idea about back explaining why some case reports of mostly animal studies experienced worse outcomes after getting calcium in, in cases of dig toxicity. And, and the idea is that, so, you know, we've already talked about the sodium potassium pump. What happens after the, your intracellular sodium rises is that that improves the release of calcium from the sarcoplasmic reticulum of your cells. And I realize I'm getting like very basic sciencey here, but <laughs> the way that DIG really works in your tissues is it, it, you know, poisons that first pump in order to increase the calcium in your cell. So you have a lot of intracellular calcium if it's working. And then the idea was that if you flood them with more calcium in the extracellular space, and you're kind of in increasing the overall calcium that's floating around, you could end up in this kind of irreversible non contractile state. So they just have so much calcium, like they're the, the muscles, like almost in tetany, like if you, if you imagine it and sort of no, no longer able to contract, there's really honestly not re very compelling evidence of harm in people who are given just small amounts of calcium. Like you might give like a little bit of calcium in, in a hyper case scenario, all the cases that had some, you know, severe outcomes were given huge amounts of calcium well above what we would typically do in a normal resuscitation. But that being said, you know, as I already mentioned earlier, if you have one who's someone who's sick enough that they are getting profoundly hyperkalemic from their DIG toxicity, you're going to be giving them the antidote. And that does usually bring down the, the potassium pretty rapidly. They're not hyper K in their whole body. They're not having a problem excreting their potassium. They just have too much that's in their serum right now. So I wouldn't be reversing it and pushing it into their cells and, and be doing that sort of thing in the first place. Because once you give the antidote, you're going to find that actually you go hypo K. In people that you've already tried to reverse so you know yes if you're working somewhere very very rurally you don't have anything else you think you need to give them a little bit of calcium it's, it's very unlikely to to cause harm but there's no compelling evidence of benefit either and certainly if you have anything else that you can give then then i'd probably avoid it mm. yeah well said the, the way that i always thought about it was based on the mechanism that you just described the toxicity has it not already accomplished the goal 
um, that we're trying to achieve by giving calcium. Like there's already an increased amount of intercellular calcium to stabilize the membrane. And that's typically the reason why we're giving calcium to patients who are hyperkalemic. So I've always kind of felt okay about the idea that I wouldn't give it in a patient with hyperkalemia in the context of DIG toxicity because I felt like it wasn't going to be of any additional benefit to what the toxidrome hasn't already done. Yeah, exactly. Is that fair? Yep. Yeah. Awesome. Okay, so that was awesome. Yeah, a lot to unpack there on DIG toxicity, but I think we got through it most everything. Anything else that we'd missed? No, I think, you know, it's a it's a heavier topic or, you know, there's more to say, more nuance to this. But the real bottom line is, you know, you have to suspect digoxin in somebody who's on it and comes in a little bit unwell. When they're very unwell, they are very unwell and, and ask for help and deal with it, you know, very quickly. But a lot of people you'll find are are just a little bit dig toxic. And, and those ones, are, our strategy has changed a little bit in even just the last few years. So Hopefully this was helpful to, to people to kind of orient them to the to sort of the differences between those groups and, and how to approach them. Amazing. Thanks, Caitlin. Digoxin is such an interesting drug. Patients are rarely on this medication, but when they are and when they come in sick, you really have to consider digoxin toxicity. Let's summarize what we learned in today's podcast. So First of all, digoxin is a sodium-potassium ATPase inhibitor. What does that mean? It increases the amount of intracellular sodium and increases the amount of extracellular potassium. As a result, remember, we have other transporters in our cells, and so the sodium-calcium transporter allows for an increased sodium excretion from the cell, and in turn, that increases the amount of calcium inside the cell ultimately increasing myocardial contraction because of the increased calcium intracellularly. Now, in terms of how we might see these patients present to the emergency department sick, most of them are going to be chronic ditch toxicities. And you need to remember the people that are at increased risk of having a chronic ditch toxicity are those with a new acute renal dysfunction or drug-drug interactions. Remember, acute presentations, are, while rare, can present in suicide attempts or drug mismanagement. In terms of how these people will present clinically, they're fairly non-specific symptoms, GI, neuro. And when we talk about the cardiac toxicity, these are things like arrhythmias. Classically, we see increased automaticity with blocks, so things like slow fib or flutter or atrial fibrillation with a junctional escape rhythm. We'll see SVTs, bradycardias, AV blocks, most commonly in the acute presentations, although chronic presentations will oftentimes have some ventricular dysrhythmias like biventricular VT. Remember, you have to check a level in patients on digoxin if they come in sick or with any of the above mentioned symptoms or ECG findings. Remember, it takes about six hours for dig to distribute into tissues. So if you really want to know the severity of the toxic ingestion, you're going to want to know a six-hour digoxin level in those who present with an acute ingestion. We're lucky we have an antidote for this. Digifab is what we call it here locally. And the following are indications for giving a patient digifab. For acute ingestions, there's really a few things that we're going to be looking for. Number one is the obvious, the patient that presents unstable with ventricular dysrhythmias or other bradyarrhythmias, dysrhythmias as previously described. Number two, patients who present with an elevated digoxin level. 
So that would be an acute ingestion with a six-hour level greater than 12.8 nanomoles per liter. Next is a patient who presents with an acute ingestion of an amount greater than 10 milligrams in an adult or 4 milligrams in a child. Finally, as Caitlin previously mentioned, acute ingestions with an elevated potassium are people you need to be worried about, and that would be approximately a potassium greater than 5.5. Indications for digifab in a chronic toxicity are a little bit more nuanced. Remember, these patients may present relatively unwell with bradydysrhythmias or ventricular dysrhythmias, and obviously those unwell people need digifab. Caitlin also mentioned that the patient who presents unwell, who is on digoxin, who you just want to take that out of the mix, giving digifab to those people are reasonable. But you need to remember, for these people, we're not trying to completely remove digoxin completely from their system because they do need that to treat the underlying cause that they have, and you may do more harm by precipitating their rapid atrial fibrillation that is difficult to control. In terms of digifab dosing, remember Caitlin talked about using one to two vials of digifab in the chronic toxicity, and probably somewhere between five to 10 vials in a patient who presents with an acute ingestion of digoxin. What about those dysrhythmias? So the bradydysrhythmia or the tachydysrhythmia. Bradydysrhythmias can be treated with atropine and tachydysrhythmias such as ventricular tachycardia treated with lidocaine. Things to avoid in these patients are shocking them. We do not want to electrically cardiovert those patients who are in VT because we know that increases their chance of mortality. Ultimately, what these patients really need is digifab. Finally, what about hyperkalemia? Remember, these patients don't need to be shifted if they are stable and have no rhythm disturbance on the basis of hyperkalemia. The treatment for hyperkalemia in someone with digoxin toxicity is, again, digifab. If you like this podcast, head on over to the website, theresuscourse.com, where you'll find other podcasts like this videos, and other resuscitation-based content, all free open access. And while you're there, you can check out information about the Resus course itself, dates, availability, and further details. I'm James Gould, and thanks for listening to the Resus course.